The Swiss Family Robinson, Chapter 16 A Bathing, A Fishing, The Jumping Hare, and A Masquerade At the moment of departure, Fritz presented his brothers and myself with a case of his own workmanship, what we stuck into our belts and which in reality were well contrived for holding spoons and knives and forks, while room was left in the middle for a little hatchet. I praised Fritz for having thus brought this idea to perfection, and for contriving to make two cases with his skin instead of one. We had harnessed the ass and the cow to our sledge. We each took a piece of bamboo cane in hand to serve as a whip, and resting our guns upon our shoulders, began our journey. Flora was to accompany us, and Turk to remain behind. We bade adieu to our companions, and put our animals in motion. We took the road by the seashore, where the sands afforded better traveling for our vehicle than the thick wild grass. We reached Family Bridge on Jackal's River, and arrived at Tent House without either obstacle or adventure, and unharnessed the animals to let them graze, while we set to work to load the sledge with a cask of butter, the cask of cheese, a small barrel of gunpowder, different instruments, some balls, some shot. These exertions had so occupied our thoughts that it was late when we first observed that our animals had attracted by the excellent quality of the grass on the other side of the river, had repassed the bridge, and wandered so far as to be out of sight. I was in hopes they would be easily found, and directed Ernest to go with Flora and bring them back, intending in the meantime to look for a convenient place on the other side of Tent House to bathe in. In a short time I found, found myself at the extremity of Providence Bay, which ended, as I now perceived, in a marsh producing some fine bulrushes, and further on a chain of steep rocks advancing somewhat into the sea, and forming a kind of creek as if expressly contrived for bathing. The of the rock even seemed like little cabinets for separate accommodation. Enchanted with this dis discovery, I called out to Ernest to come and join me, and in the meantime amused myself with cutting some of the rushes and imagining what use I could apply them to. I desired him to fill a small bag with some of the salt he had formerly observed here, and then to empty it into the large one for the ass to carry, and to take care to fill equally on each side. During this time I will take the refreshment of bathing, and then it will be your turn to bathe, and mine to take care of the animals. I returned to the rocks, and was not disappointed in my expectation of an enjoyment the most delicious. But I did not stay long, fearing my boy might be impatient for his share of so new a pleasure. When I had dressed myself, I returned to the place to see if his work had advanced. Presently I heard his voice calling out, Father, father, a fish, a fish of monstrous size. Run quickly, father, I can hardly hold him. He is eating at the string of my line. I ran to the place from which the voice proceeded, and found Ernest lying along the ground on his face upon the extremity of a point of land, and pulling his line to which a large fish was hanging, and struggling to get loose. I ran hastily, and snatched the rod out of his hand, for I feared the weight and activity of the fish might pull him into the water. I gave the line length to calm the fish, and then contrived to draw him gently along into a shallow from which he could no longer escape, and thus he was effectually secured. 
we examined him thoroughly, and he appeared to weigh not less than fifteen pounds, so that our capture was magnificent, and would afford the greatest pleasure to our good steward of provisions at Falcon Stream. You have now really labored, said I to Ernest, not only with your head, but with your whole body, and I would advise you to wipe the perspiration from your face and keep a little quiet before you venture into the water. You have produced us a dish of great excellence, which will last for several days, and have conducted yourself like a true cavalier, without fear and without reproach. It was at least fortunate, observed he in a modest tone, that I thought of bringing my fishing rod. Father, certainly it was, but tell me how you came to see the large fish, and what made you think you could catch it? Ernest, I used to remark great quantities of fish in the water just hereabout, and, and this made me determined to bring my fishing tackle with me. In my way to the salt, I perceived a great number of little crabs upon which fishes feed near the water's brink. I thought I would try to bait my hook with one of them, so I hastened my work and came to the spot where I caught only a dozen little fish, which are there in my handkerchief, but I remarked that they were chased in the water by fishes of larger size. This gave me the idea of baiting my hook with one of the small ones, but the hook was too small and my rod too weak. I then took one of the finest of the bulrushes you had just gathered and put a larger hook to my line, and in a short time the large fish you see there seized upon the bait and paid his life for his ferocity. However, I must confess that if you had not come to my assistance, I must either have let go my line, or have been dragged into the water, for the fish was stronger than I. We now examined the smaller fishes, which were mostly trout and herrings, while I felt certain that the large one was a salmon. I cut them all open, and rubbed them in the inside with salt, that they might not be injured by the heat. While I was then thus employed, Ernest went to the rocks and bathed, and I had time to fill some more bags with salt before his return. We then harnessed and loaded our animals, and then resumed the road to Falcon Stream. When we had proceeded about halfway, Flora, who was before us, suddenly sprang off, and by her barking gave notice that she scented some game. We soon after saw her pursuing an animal, which seemed endeavoring to escape and made the most extraordinary jumps imaginable. The dog continued to follow the creature in trying to avoid him, passed within gunshot of the place where I stood. I fared, but its flight was so rapid that I did not hit. Ernest, who was at a small distance behind, hearing the report of my gun, prepared his own and fired it off at the instant the singular animal was passing near him, seeking to hide itself among the tall herbage just by. He had fared so skillfully that the animal fell dead at the same instant. I ran with extreme curiosity to ascertain what kind of quadruped it might be. It was as large as a sheep, with the tail resembling that of a tiger. Both its snout and hair were like those of a mouse, and its teeth were like a hare's, but much larger. The forelegs resembled those of the squirrel and were extremely short, but to make up for this, its hind legs were as large as a pair of stilts, and of a form strikingly singular. We examined the creature a long time in silence. I could not be sure that I had ever seen an engraving or description of it in any natural history or book of travels. Ernest, at length, clapping his hands together, joyously exclaimed, And have I really killed this wonderful animal? What will my mother and my brothers say? How astonished they will be! And how fortunate I am in securing so fine a prize! What do you think its name is, father? I would give all the world to know. Father, and so would I, 
my boy, but I am as ignorant as you. One thing, however, is certain that this is your lucky day. Let us exa- again examine this interesting stranger, that we may be certain to what family of quadrupeds it belongs. This will perhaps throw a light upon its name. Ernest, I think it can hardly be named a quadruped, for the little forelegs look much more like hands as is the case with monkeys. Father, they are not with standing legs, I can assure you. Let us look for its name among the animals who give suck. On this point we cannot be mistaken. Now let us examine its teeth. Ernest, here are the four incisory teeth like the squirrel. Father, thus we see that it belongs to the order of nimblers. Now let us look for some names of animals of this kind. Ernest, besides squirrels, I recollect only mice, marmots, hares, beavers, porcupines, and jumpers. Father, jumpers! That short word furnishes the necessary clue. The animal is completely formed like the gerboa, or jumping hare, except that it is twice the size of those of which I have read a description. Wait a moment. An idea strikes me. I will wager that our animal is one of the large jumpers called kangaroo. It belongs properly to the genus Didyphus or Falander, because the female male who never bears more than one young one carries it in a kind of purse placed behind, between her hind legs. To the best of my knowledge, this animal has never been seen but on the coast of New Holland, where it was first observed by the celebrated navigator Captain Cook. You may then be highly flattered with your adventure of killing an animal at once so rare and so remarkable, but now let us see how we shall manage to drag him to the sledge. Ernest requested that I would rather assist him to carry it, as he was afraid of spoiling his beautiful mouse-colored skin by dragging it on the ground. I therefore tied the four legs of the kangaroo together, and by means of two canes we were with considerable trouble contrived to carry it to the sledge upon which it was securely fastened. Having now nothing more to detain us, we continued our road towards Falcon Stream, conversing on the subject of natural history and on the necessity of studying it in our youth, that we might learn to class plants and animals according to their characteristic marks. And we observed that to such a knowledge as this it was owing that we had recognized the kangaroo, entreated me to tell him all I knew about the animal. It is, said I, a most singular kind of creature. Its four legs, as you see, have scarcely the third part of the length of the hind ones, and the most it can do is to make them serve the purpose of walking, but the hind legs enable it to make prodigious jumps, the same as is in the flea and the grasshopper. The food of the kangaroo consists of herbs and roots which they dig up very skillfully with their forelegs. They place themselves upon their hind legs which are doubled under them as if on a chair and by this means are able to look above even the tall kinds of grass. They rest too upon their tail which is exceedingly strong and is also of great use to them in jumping by assisting the spring from the ground. It is said that the kangaroo, if derived of its tail, would scarcely be able to jump at all. We at length arrived happily, though somewhat late, at Falcon Stream, having heard from a great distance the salutations of our family. Our companions all ran to meet us, but it was now on seeing the ludicrous style of the dress of the three boys our turn for immoderate fits of laughter. One had on a sailor's shirt, which trained round him like the robe of a spectre. 
doctor. Another was buried in a pair of pantaloons, which were fastened round his neck and reached to the ground, and the third had a long waistcoat, which came down to the instep and gave him the exact form of a traveling portmantilla. They all tried to jump about, but finding this impossible from the length of their garments, they next resolved to carry off the whole with an air, by strutting slowly to and fro in the manner of a great personage in a theater. After some hearty laughing, I inquired of my wife what could be the cause of this masquerade, and whether she had assisted them in attempting to act a comedy for our amusement. She disclosed the mystery by informing me that her three boys had also been bathing, and that while thus engaged, she had washed all their clothes, but as they had not dried as soon as she had expected, her little rioters had been imp become impatient and then fallen on the chest of sailors' clothes, and each had taken from it what article he had pleased. I preferred, said she, that you should see them in this odd sort of disguise rather than quite naked like little savages, in which opinion I assured her that I heartily joined her. It was now our turn to give an account of our journey. As we advanced in our narrative, we presented one after another caskets, bulrushes, salt, fish, and lastly, with infinite triumph, our beautiful kangaroo. In a trice, it was surrounded, examined, and admired by all, and such a variety of questions asked that Ernest and I scarcely knew which to answer first. Fritz was the only one who was a little silent. I saw plainly by his countenance what was passing in his mind. He was jealous of the good fortune of his brother Ernest, but I also saw that he was struggling manfully against the ascendancy of so mean a passion. In a short time he had succeeded so completely that he joined frankly and unaffectedly in our conversation and merriment. He came near the kangaroo and examined it. Then, turning to his brother, he observed to him in a kind tone that he had ha had good luck, and that he must be a good shot to have killed the animal with so little difficulty. But, father, said he, when you go again to Tent House, or on any other excursion, will it not be my turn to accompany you? For here at Falcon Stream there is nothing new to amuse us. A few thrushes and some pigeons, this is all we have from day to day, and I find it very carousome. I promise you cheerfully what you desire, my dear boy, said I, for you have valiantly combated the jealousy and ill humor which assailed you on witnessing your brother's success with the kangaroo. I therefore engage that you shall accompany me in my very next excursion, which will probably take place at no greater distance of time than tomorrow, and it will be another journey to the vessel. But in the meantime, let me observe to you that the high opinion I have shown of your prudence and judgment in leaving you here in charge of your mother and your brothers ought to be felt by you as more flattering than the applause you would have gained by killing a kangaroo. You have accomplished an important duty in keeping near them all the time and not suffering yourself to be allured by such amusements as presented themselves to your fancy, and this conduct has increased my affection and respect for you. Praise is also due to Ernest for the moderation with which he has felt his triumph in so extraordinary an occurrence, for he has not even told you of my humiliating failure in attempting to shoot the kangaroo. To triumph over our passions and to have on all occasions a perfect government of our temper is an acquisition of infinite more value than in showing a certain skill in firing off a gun and happening to kill an animal. In our situation, we are forced upon the cultivation of such arts as these. But though we may practice them as necessary for our existence, we have no reason to be proud of them. 
We concluded the day with our ordinary occupations, gave some salt to each of our animals to whom it was an acceptable treat. We then skinned our kangaroo and put it carefully aside till the next day. When we intended to cut it to pieces and lay such parts in salt as we could not immediately consume, we made an excellent supper on our little fish, to which we added some potatoes. Nor were our faithful companions, Turk and Flora, neglected. The labors of the day had more than usually disposed us all to seek repose. We therefore said our prayers at an early hour, mounted our ladder, and were soon asleep.